this is Russ Berlingame from Emerald City Video and ComicBook.com. I'm here with... This is Ryan Belgard. I'm the writer and director of the Jurassic Games. And we're going to be talking about this. This is actually the second time that Ryan has done a commentary track for this film. So uh, uh, if you enjoy this, you should definitely pick up the Blu-ray instead of getting it digitally. Well, the other one had um, a lot more people than just me. So this one will have a lot more me, if that means anything. <laughs> <laughs> my, my first question is why start, what, why start with the Carlin quote in particular? You know, uh, well, Adam, Adam Hampton um, – who plays Tucker in the movie? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, there it is. Adam Adam Hampton helped me write the story, and when we were talking about the concept for the story, he said, "You know, this reminds me of the Adam. Ha- uh, I'm sorry, of the George Carlin bit that he did. Uh, you know, back whenever." And uh, and so we looked it up and we read it, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's that's uh, perfect." I mean, that's, he's talking about this, and so we just thought it'd be really fun to uh, put a quote from George Carlin uh, up up on front, like. Like maybe he turned out to be some great prophet, <laughs> which you know it worked for uh, it worked for the Breakfast Club with the uh, with that quote. So yeah. Uh, so why don't you talk a little bit right now? We're we're seeing him essentially in his uh, in his jail while all of the uh, the CG or the uh, not the CG but all of the VR is getting set up. Yeah, basically what we're doing is just establishing the world uh, that this is a VR game, and it's kind of like showing the behind the scenes of the people, you know, setting up the visors and the controls, and then we're introducing Anthony Tucker, and right here he's accepting his fate, um, you know, as a contestant uh, on the on the Jurassic Games, and it's kind of just cutting back and forth in time, like this stuff right here feels like it's right before the game start, but maybe some of these other shots like this might be, you know, some other time, but. We're basically just showing, trying to build this world where there's people that are watching, uh, and these girls right here don't even care about the contestants. They just want to see what our host is uh, going to wear this time. And so, just I wanted to show that, you know, this is just normal, everyday, exciting television for the uh, for the people of the world. Uh, whenever this show is airing, it's not like some big special thing. It's just, you know, uh, there are protesters that we'll see coming up, but really for everyone else, you know, you just go to the bar and it's like the Super Bowl. I, I wanted it to be like the Super Bowl, a big yearly thing that everybody was looking forward to. And uh, is this mask that that we see the host getting on, uh, is that his normal thing or does he change it periodically? No, I mean, it's I, I would say it's his normal thing. Um, really what it was was practically for us, it was a way to get Ryan Merriman in the movie more. Uh, because in this scene, it is actually Ryan Merriman wearing the mask. But every other time in the movie where he's inside the game, it's a body double. That's just mimicking uh, and moving around to the dialogue that Ryan Merriman pre-recorded in the studio, and that way I didn't have to have Ryan Merriman all over the place when we were shooting this stuff. He did. He personally, though, did want to come to this particular scene because it was the opening scene in the movie, and he said, "You know, I want to come out and be on set with you guys and do this scene." And it was awesome because that was at a place called Robbers Cave in Oklahoma, which is an old like it's like an old West hideout. I think Jesse James like hid out there or something and. Uh, back in the old olden times or whatever, but um, but you know Ryan came out and stayed with us overnight with the whole crew and cast, and he cooked us all onion burgers, and it was like awesome. It was just it's a really fun fun night with him that we'll never none of us will ever forget. That it was really cool. But yeah, the mask was just a way to um, not have to have our actor in the you know <laughs> for the practically it was that, but like creatively, uh, we just thought it'd be cool to have him look kind of like scary and mysterious, you know. 
Now, what what's the idea behind? And is it just did it come out of the mask, or what was the idea behind the uh, just calling him the host and not giving him like a, a MTV VJ a kind of personality name? Ah, oh, man, I think it was just in the script I'd written it as the host, and um, you know I just never thought of anyone ever calling him a name. It did cross my mind that someone would call him by his name, and I think we even had a draft where he was named something. And like Savannah said his name and then it just felt like kind of forced. And I don't think I really liked the name we came up with. And so I was just like, you know, let's just call him the host. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like he needed a name. Again, it was just to add to the mystery of, of, of him as a character. Now, uh, as we're kind of running down the, the guidelines of the Jurassic games here, uh, I know that when we spoke on a previous interview, you talked about – coming kind of gradually to the idea that it would be a, a, a CG world rather than actual dinosaurs. Uh, did Was it nice to have this to kind of tell everybody who's tuning in for the first time, okay, this is this is what it is without, you know, having five trailers like the other Jurassic movie would? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just thought, I, we thought right away at the beginning of the movie, let's just put the contestants in the game. You know, right right away, and let's establish that it's a game. Let's put them in the game so that, you know, I didn't want I didn't want to spend a lot of time at the beginning of this movie with a lot of exposition uh, of like what the world is like or who these people were. I just really wanted to throw everybody right into the action, and uh, and then get going back and forth really quickly between the virtual reality game and then realizing these are people playing a game and they're all being controlled or the game's being controlled by uh, the host here and then the director Savannah Black. So that we meet here in just a second. So, I mean, that, that to me was uh, fun. It was, it was a fun, a more fun story to come up with and a more fun idea to play with than if we were just going to put convicts on an island with actual clone dinosaurs. Um, you know, and then we talked about it earlier. It's like it also gave us a little bit of like, um, not an excuse, to, so to speak, but just kind of like, oh, well, they're virtual dinosaurs, so they can maybe not look exactly 100% photorealistic and maybe we can get away with that a little bit more. Not that we didn't try to make them 100% more realistic, but our budgets and time, our time limitations kind of, you know, uh, allowed us to achieve the level that we achieved, which I was really proud of. But, you know, obviously it's not the same as Jurassic World. Yeah. Actually, one of the things we talked about in the, the podcast was that we liked the idea that at one point there's actually a throwaway line in here about, well, we don't actually know how they behaved, so we just programmed it the way we thought they would behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right, right. Which it, it's kind of a, a fly in the ointment of the the things like, oh, well, we all know that the T-Rex can't see movement. Right, right. Well, you know, and there's also the the thought, well, should they have feathers and, you know, be more scientifically accurate? And we were like, no, 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 no. They, should, they need to be like – that was another reason why we thought this was fun. In a meta sort of way, the Jurassic Games TV show was made for what people wanted, not for what was scientifically ac- accurate. And it kind of worked with the movie, too. You know, it's like we were told to make a dinosaur movie, and we wanted to make a dinosaur movie. Well, in the show, they're doing the same thing. They're making a dinosaur movie with killer dinosaurs, not cute, feathery dinosaurs, you know? And so – th- Oh, sorry? Oh, I was just going to say, and then this part here, you know, we're setting up the – hopefully showing everybody what's about to come up in the movie by setting up this kind of neat animated uh, uh, graphic of what what's going to happen. Uh, which you like it because the gulp there uh, from the T-Rex is almost identical to the actual gulp that we got before the animated menu even came up. Yep, right. And I, well, I had a piece of foreshadowing that I really loved that I was uh, asked to cut out of the movie. But during the cookie scene, 
when the family has the cookies, there was a little girl there dressed up in a T-Rex hoodie, and she had a cookie of the host, and she bit his head off. <laughs> and uh, I love that, and I, I just thought that was so clever. And then uh, I remember our sales agent was like, no, you can't put that in there. It's We can't show kids watching violence or there's going to be a um, – you know, potentially uh, censorship issues and things. And I was like, okay, fine, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and here we're uh, kind of, you know, just giving you a little bit of backstory about people, but, you know, I'm not going to give you all 10 of them on this thing. I think they'd get boring. So we cut away, we cut away from that and then start looking at what's going on behind the scenes. I kind of like the choice of, uh, having the folks whose bios we see be the ones who are least important to the movie in a lot of ways, so that then you know who they are, even though they don't get a chance to get developed as much. That's exactly why we did it. Yeah, I, I put those guys in there because they didn't really have any other uh, chance to have backstory. You got it. And then anytime, anytime you're looking through the drone camera, we put that little Jurassic Games logo at the bottom left to kind of let you know, oh, this is like you know him talking to the television audience. The uh, I, I like the drone cameras. I, I think the, the parallel that I drew when I was talking about it with Zach was that it reminded me of the T-spheres from, from Arrow, those little, like, yeah. floating weapony things. Uh, how, how difficult was it to get those in, or was that just one of those things where you put it in exclusively in CG later? It was CG, yeah. Those, those, all those drone cameras were just CG, and, um, you know, we knew going into it that I wanted to do that to kind of give it a more futuristic look. You know, I mean, without the, it's funny because uh, Chris, who built that set for us, did an amazing job building that set. But if you look at it without the futuristic screens and without the flying drones, it kind of just looks like a bunch of painted plywood. You know, so um, adding all the screens and the drones and the lights and stuff, I think, you know, kind of gave you this sort of like futuristic, um, you know, feeling that it needed to have. But yeah, those those drones were all CG, especially with the all the screens and the computer interfaces and the hol holographic table. I, I mean, I'm not kidding. That stuff gave us more of a headache than the dinosaurs did because there's just so much of it. There's so many shots of those uh, hologram tables and stuff. And when you're and in a may... crowded room like that, is it really difficult to find that balance of, like, how many of these things should be going at once before <laughs> it gets too distracting to tell the story? <laughs> sure, but I I don't think I really paid attention to that until afterwards. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I didn't want it to be too busy, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that, like, almost any angle we showed that set had some element of a futuristic screen or something to give you the idea that it's not, you know, just a basically plywood painted gray, you know. This this scene um, turned out to be one of my favorite action scenes. Um, it was one that we reshot because when we shot it the first time, um, there was a couple of things. The fight didn't seem as exciting to me, but also we had it switch, switched around and we had it where Tucker actually uh, went ahead and killed this guy. And... And, uh, and then, you know, Joy, Katie's character Joy, was more acting like a damsel in distress. And, you know, uh, I thought it just did not work. When we saw it in the edit, it was like, no, this can't work because if we have Tucker killing someone, and I think he automatically loses any sympathy that he would have. And we needed to establish that Joy was a cold-blooded killer while Tucker was more of like sympathetic and he was not there to kill. He was there to just survive. Uh, but Joy was there to sadistically kill people, and I thought by reshooting this and then re having them say the few lines of dialogue they have here really sets up the opposites that Joy and Tucker are perfectly. And I was really happy with that because th then you know right away who you're rooting for and who uh, is kind of surprisingly uh, the bad guy here, and that that worked out good. 
And I also, think. oh, sorry. Yeah, I just think that worked out better than our original way we had it. I think it also kind of helps the ending because if he kills anybody along the way, then I feel like it, it becomes harder and harder to believe that he doesn't just kill Joy when he has the chance near the end. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's re- he's reluctant to kill anyone. And uh, that was one of the things that was tricky about this movie was that, okay, you've got the main antagonist, the main protagonist, and he's obviously, you know, almost almost three times, uh, you know, you know, the strength and size of her, so he could easily kill her. So we had to give him other reasons to not, you know. Uh, like, we, we wound him or we get him kind of weak or whatever, but also morally, he's not, he doesn't want to kill anybody. And you also have this thing, it's, it's funny, I just watched this film called The Domestics, where everybody is essentially in gangs except for the main characters who are just this married couple trying to survive. And it's the same kind of sensibility. You have this thing of... Okay, well, implicitly, he's not going to be as good at some of this stuff because even though he's our point of view character, like it's not what he does. Yeah, yeah, you know, in in in, in his backstory, he's like maybe a professional football player or something, like an ex professional, you know. So he's athletic and he's strong and he's, you know, he, but he's not a killer, you know. And then uh, this scene here, you know, we added these uh, overlays to just kind of give you the feeling that okay, this is a being a this is a pre-recorded interview she's doing with the uh, with the drone cameras again. For whatever reason, I see these kids on the couch, and this, I feel like this is the most depressing episode ever of How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> uh, we did, uh, just to go back a moment because we were talking over it, uh, we got that quick moment of the protesters. Uh, is there something kind of implicitly commentary about the fact that they just mute the screen of the protesters? Yeah, and what I was trying to get across there, and maybe it didn't work very well, but um, you know, that's actually through a window of this apartment. And, and uh, so the drone, what the drone is doing is it's muting the – I just thought it was a cool sci-fi thing that the drone would be muting the audio of the protesters through the window. Like somehow it could put up a shield and like the audio would go away, you know, so they, they would be silenced. So – so absolutely, that's what it's meant to be. Is like the show is like kind of callously and without even care, just sort of like ignoring the protesters. And they even have to, they even have to, to, to have uh, technology that can just silence them. And that's kind of what that's supposed to be showing. It's interesting because on one level, you'd think that the protesters would make for better TV, but I guess in the in the context of Jurassic Games, it's just bad for the brand. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's. I actually thought a lot about like if this show actually existed, there, you know, there probably would be people that would be protesting it, and um, and so you've got Savannah here who's just like kind of fed up with them, and but she's confident, and she asked him. I think uh, earlier she asked him about, you know, are there any breaches of our security? And the guy's like, yeah, they've tried, but she's like, yeah, just keep it. You know, they they know that people are constantly trying to um, hack their system and shut them down, and they just prefer to ignore it or act like it's not there which i think you know kind of sets up better for the ending when they're shocked by what happens what do you think uh, not what do you think what was the balance of because we saw the shots a minute ago of the dinosaurs just kind of chilling with no contestants in the area obviously that's expensive and time consuming to just make them so what is the balance of kind of like making sure that the audience is getting what they're here for versus trying to get the movie kind of done as efficiently as you can? 
Well, I just felt like there had to be dinosaurs, you know, in a dinosaur movie. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of this, this movie though really is about the people, right? And, and their interactions with each other. And the dinosaurs are there. I mean, they could have been anything. It could have been robots or whatever, werewolves or whatever you want it to be. But like, you know, I just felt like that I wanted there to be as many dinosaurs as there could be with our budget and time. And so we just sort of, you know, in this sort of first act here, there's really not a whole lot of dinosaurs. And so I just felt like we needed to pepper in the fact that like, okay, well, in this first stage, they're supposed to be sort of like, you know, being hunted. So I just wanted to make sure that we showed raptors around the area. And again, you know, Brian says to Savannah, uh, hey, I've got some hunters, some raptors hunting them. They're good hunters. And she's like, well, spawn them closer. We don't want to watch them hunting. We want to watch them killing, you know. And that's kind of what, uh, you know, the reason maybe these characters have so much time here on their own is because Brian spawned them too far away. Um, but but that's kind of my thinking on that, you know, is that, you know, if I had the budget and time, I would have probably shown a lot more dinosaur stuff <laughs> through all this. But, it, you know, when you're working on a, on a low-budget movie, it's it becomes more about the things that are – like you said, like a scene like this where it's it's Joy versus Tucker. It's two people, you know, and no dinosaurs and much easier to, to do. I actually, when we talked about it on the podcast, I, I said that coming up here where she kind of rounds the corner and doesn't immediately die from hubris, this is the moment where <laughs> I was like, oh, so she's our big bad. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Because I felt like the after she just humiliates the main character in a fist fight the the two things that can happen is that she turns around and learns the lesson that like come on guys you're supposed to be working together for the first leg or she turns around and becomes the big bad <laughs> yeah no you, yeah I, I think that's good i think you're right i'm glad i i don't like some of that stuff isn't necessarily uh thought out or planned on my end it's just but what i, I love hearing your guys take on things like that because that kind of helps me <laughs> you know moving moving forward especially in writing and coming up with stories it's like oh okay well that's that's when you when you thought she was the big bad. Okay, good. But 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 uh, we we did want we did want her to be from the beginning. You know, I think Katie Burgess is a great actress, and and uh, I thought that she would do a great job in this character. And we purposely talked about it. we talked about it, and purposely just didn't really want her to have a big backstory. You know, of like because we we thought about it. Like, what would exactly what the Laura character is asking right here? What would cause you to be this way at such a young age? You know, and by her saying that. I think that at least lets the audience know that we did think about it, but it really just came down to Joy is not going to tell anybody her backstory. She doesn't care. She just wants to kill people, you know, and she's mean and horrible, and that's that's all that matters, really. And, you know, if you go back and say, oh, well, she's like this because of this or that, I mean, I guess you could garner sympathy for her, but I don't know. We, we just felt that we didn't need to, and... It's funny how I've talked to people who said that, you know, Joy's my favorite character. I really liked her. I sympathized with her the most. And we're like, really? She didn't even have any backstory. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I feel like there's a, a base level of backstory that comes just from being, like, young and pretty and female. It's like, well, she can't be that bad uh, until right. the movie actually shows you, like, no, she's actually kind of a monster. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe it's better just to have them wondering why is she that way, you know? Um, but you know, that's what, one thing I wanted to do with Jurassic games was have it move really quickly. And I think by, it was tricky because I had 10 contestants in the game that each needed to be explained at least enough that people would understand, uh, you know, what are their motivations? Why are they doing the things they're doing? And that was pretty tricky to weave that stuff all in through the story and not have it bogged down with like, you know, long exposition and backstories of these characters. I, you know, I, I remember when I was writing this, I had just recently seen Suicide Squad and I felt like Suicide Squad was was critiqued pretty heavily 
for the way it did its backstories. And, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of avoid that. I, I just wanted to have the backstories interwoven throughout the story. And you just learn what you need to know um, when you need to know it, and that's it. It's funny because I actually went on when, ten minutes ago or whatever when I mentioned the, the thing about how you chose the, the lower-level characters to put on the computer screen – I almost made that comparison of like this is kind of like what Suicide Squad overdid. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that, that was like somewhere in the back of your mind because uh, in in the back of my mind it kind of tickled that same spot. Well, and I well yeah thanks and and this scene even is like we're doing we're doing double duty so I'm giving you some of Rin's backstory here and who he is and he's like a you know a, a political criminal um, but then this is the same it's the same it means two things it's showing Rin's backstory but it also shows that Laura might be sympathetic to something like this. And then it also brings in Savannah right here who says, you know, uh, you're not planning on using that. That's not the kind of stuff we, you know, want on our, on our air. And so you're showing like that, that was the stuff that we tried pretty hard to do in the story was to interweave the backstories of the contestants into the regular narrative of the story rather than stop the narrative to tell a backstory. And that's, uh, that's why I think the pacing works pretty good. Um, and I'm, that's one of the things I'm most proud about on this movie was I felt like that we uh, kind of got the pacing pretty tight. I felt like Ren in particular, is, a, is a, he's such a great character and his story, like, it comes and goes. And at the moment when he's out of the movie, you're almost shocked by it. Uh, but, but I do kind of feel like once you see the rest of the film, it's like there wasn't really any place else for him to be. Yeah. Yeah, and if there's one character that uh, I wish I would have done a little bit more backstory, it would have been Stephanie, the one who's the uh, sed sed seducer, you know, who's the Black Widow type killer. And she, looking back on it now, I'm like, yeah, there's a scene or two that I, I bet you I could have like weaved in her at least attempting to try to like, like maybe seduce Tucker. Uh, and and obviously he wouldn't go for it because you know he's just lost his wife and stuff. But um, but still, like at least we would, could have shown her trying to do that. But really, Stephanie was more uh, there to be a target for Albert. Uh, someone, someone that he could eat, you know, and go after. So, I, uh, and uh, go ahead. I was gonna say that that we're we're at the spider uh, scene, which I I had almost completely forgotten that there was the giant spider because it gets so overwhelmed by the plant, which comes soon after. <laughs> you know, that was uh, the giant spider was there because we just. You know, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of the Dark Crystal. It's one of my favorites. And in the Dark Crystal, it felt like to me that they would have shots of like just one puppet that they built for one shot, you know. And I just kind of like the idea that we're going to show um, a spider or a bug getting squashed or, you know, different things like that, that we don't have to do it, but we want to do it to show that the world is actually populated and bigger than just just the things that you are are afraid of, you know. And that was... That was really just an attempt to make the world seem bigger. I, I know, I, I think I read somewhere where someone was saying like, hey, if you're going to show me a big spider, you know, you have to show the big spider doing something later. And it just, and I'm like, yeah, I, I see your point, but it never occurred to me. <laughs> I was like, I was too focused on what's coming up here. You know, the, the maze, you know. See, I, I always feel like there's, there's both sides of that coin are totally appropriate. Like, yeah, I, I get that criticism, but I kind of like the idea of like having a, a fully realized world where like there's some crap that we just aren't going to get into right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I just, I, you know, I wanted to make it feel bigger. Uh, so, so here's Dylan Cox. He, he's playing uh, Elavispa, the Wasp. Uh, originally, it was written in the script for this character to be a uh, a little old Hispanic drug lord lady, um, but we uh, we had Dylan Dylan Cox. We cast him at it, and I think he did he did a great job. And and uh, here he is trying to argue for his 
for uh, setting up the uh, you know the, the story that he can save uh, the brother's mother, and and again like and the brothers too originally in the script were more like Aryan brothers like skinheads like you know these guys looked a lot uh, grosser and meaner you know in my mind, um, but we ended up going with more uh, familial brothers. And the reason I wanted there to be brothers in the game was simply because that way they could have an alliance that I didn't have to explain. And uh, it was just simply that. You know, it's like, okay, if I make these guys brothers, they can be on the same team and I don't have to have a backstory as to why they're on the same team. And uh, and then it kind of just, you know, I like the idea here of the host toying with them. So, you know, you get um, these raptors that are running at them, but the host is like, oh, no, I don't want them to die yet. So I'll fade them out. And now Savannah's upset about that. <laughs> I like the audience reaction, too. Uh. You know what's fun about that is we just had our cast and crew screening, our, our world premiere, actually, at the Dead Center Film Festival. And we had a packed house. It was really great. And um, it was really fun to watch this with an audience because they would react, and then we would cut to our audience in the movie reacting the same exact way. <laughs> and I think and I think that it made uh, for a really, like and – then, and then the actual audience would laugh again. Or react again, and because they're like, "Oh my gosh, this movie is thinking the same thing I'm thinking," <laughs> you know. So that uh, was really, really, really fun to watch with an audience. Which is funny because obviously, so much of the movie deals with like we're doing this because we want to exact such and such a response from people. And yeah. so, if the movie is successfully doing that, then on, the, on that metric alone, it's like, well, that kind of worked. Yeah, oh, I love that. Yeah, and it, that's the best part of screening movies with an audience is that you get to see, you know, what jokes work, what kind of fell flat, you know. I, the one thing I, I was questioning here is, do these brothers have some kind of uh, either master plan or delusion that they're somehow going to get out together? Because it seems to me that uh, there's there's no way that you can possibly, uh, you know, even in the best case scenario, you end up uh, the final two chained to a dinosaur. Right, I know, and I just think that they're both so like kind of like, you know, one of them is kind of like, haven't you seen this show before, man? We can't. One of us is going to die. I I think that they probably had made some kind of pact with each other. They were going to help each other get to the end and get the other one, you know, the, a chance to win. And I think I think that's kind of like probably because you know if you're a death row inmate and you're scheduled to be die anyway, it's like. You know, it's that's kind of where these guys are motivated to kind of like do crazy stuff. You know, it's like, okay, well, if I had if, if we had a 50 50 chance to live, if you and I work together, then I think maybe that became maybe their motivations in the past to to work together here. But again, in my original script, they weren't family brothers. They were like Aryan brothers. So they weren't uh, they were they were allied, but they weren't necessarily family. So they would have more easily betrayed each other, you know, in the original script. But we kept it. We we decided a family brother would be good, and then we could have this sort of backstory here when he talks about their mother who died, uh, and they don't know the mother died. I thought that was kind of a fun like trick the show's playing on them. Like, yeah, you know, their mother's dead, but we're going to see how this uh, ruse goes on anyway. They get the like O Henry ending, even though they don't actually, uh, <laughs> even though they don't actually win. They don't actually get to the point where they get to walk out to the O Henry ending. Right. And then we do, uh, the audience uh, seemed to like this transition here where he says, don't worry, you'll see the raptors. And the, uh, one of the things actually that I, I really dug was that every single time the dinosaurs show up on screen, it isn't the biggest scene in the movie. Because again, it, it's, it helps to build the world if not every single time you see them is like, holy crap, the movie just fell apart. 
Well, good. Yeah, that was that was the intention. Yeah, I, I I wanted to build it. You know, I wanted to build to these big. You know, we we knew that we had a couple of really big moments in the movie. Uh, one coming up soon with the Raptor Maze, and then uh, the other one, the finale, of course. So uh, everything up to that, we wanted to be kind of a build up. You know, and and uh, we always kind of laugh at Tiger Shu there, who plays uh, Rin. The way he ran through those trees, we always kind of laughed at him about that. <laughs> Because <laughs> we were joked about animating lasers flying because it looked like he's dodging lasers as he's running through the trees. See, he reminds like, me of me when I was a 12-year-old because I, <laughs> I, I used to live out in the middle of East Jesus Nowhere, and I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was totally uh, reliving his, his days of doing that too. He, he was awesome, man. He had so much energy. And I'll, When we get to that part where he does the uh, fight with the raptors, I'll tell you about uh, how that all happened and stuff, and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. That's just blueberries we stuck on a tree. Yeah. It's funny, this, uh, like, when we get to this kind of chunk of it is when it's really kind of chaotic because, yeah. because you're between stages almost. And so it's like, well, now nobody has anything to lose and nobody's running from much. Yeah, and we wanted to take the, a little bit of a breather here to kind of like – pair up some people and kind of show like the, the cannibals, uh, intentions, you know, he's like, he's commenting on how good the berries taste. And he's like, Oh, well, if these taste this good, then how good do you taste? You know? And that's just kind of a, just again, you know, we're, we're wanting to show that they've, the producers of the show, like every little detail, like down to how berries taste, you know, has been programmed into the, into the show. But then she's kind of saved by the bell as stage two opens up again. Here's an, here's another shot of just, we don't need to do that, but we just, did it and uh you know kind of like showing that joy was still just going to kill everything she could the com the comparison i think i made when i was talking to somebody about that shot actually was uh in the death of superman comics when i was a kid the the first time we see doomsday he like plows his way out of his underground prison and he's just standing there with his hand out and he's so still a bird lands in it and then he just squashes it and you're like <laughs> Well, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here we introduce the idea that uh, they can just be put to sleep and then kind of goes to commercial break. There's my son, Charlie, and then there's Chris's son, Ike. And we just went out, to the, we went out to the park with these action figures and just had them playing around with them. It was really fun. Uh, it, it's uh, the, One of the things I commented on is like, have, have you figured out the legality of like in the world of it how they uh, how they skirt around like not having to pay all the money from these action figures to the victims' families or something? <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> no, that, you're right though. There'd probably be some some uh, they'd have, have to definitely sign off, you know, or yeah. something. Or maybe, maybe they did pay them. Maybe maybe they did pay them off. Who knows? In the uh, in the Shazam movie, some of the early set set uh, photos have shown Suicide Squad toys that exist apparently in the world of that movie. And nice. when I did a set visit, I asked, I asked one of the producers about that, and he just gave me a look. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, man, like so, so much – and I really enjoyed your guys' in-depth podcast you did when you reviewed the movie. It was really cool because there's a lot of stuff that you guys think about and talk about that I'm listening to it going, hmm – that's good. Or I never thought of that, you know? And, and then from my perspective as a director and writer, there's so like, I have to think of every single aspect of the overall story, you know, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of the big picture, right. And how it works from beginning to end. 
and if it's got a beginning, middle, and end, and if it tells the story. And, and so there are things that, like, are sort of happy accidents that might work. And then there are things that, like, you know, like details are things that might be a little bit inconsistent in, like, if this were the real world that, like, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's true. And I've got some great friends and writing partners that kind of help me point out a lot of that stuff. But, you know, sometimes you just miss it. I like the uh, I, I like the way that Ryan bounces off the totally inert actors in this scene. Yeah, yeah. So the first the first four days of shooting of the movie was in this uh, set location, and so all ten of our contestants were there. And the first four days of their acting, they just sat there still and did nothing. <laughs> but it was cool because they between takes and on breaks and stuff, they all got to bond. And I think that was really great for when we actually were out in the uh, in the wilderness later with them, and they all kind of like had had a good uh, rapport then because they were they had spent these four days on this set. Now, in in the world of the of the movie, when they go in, are the clothing that they're wearing is that a manifestation of their mind, or is that what's programmed in by the show? I think that's programmed in by the show. I think I always imagined it was. Yeah, just kind of giving them. Quasi futuristic sort yeah. of. Yeah, I, I mostly just because the the brothers are so filthy, and I'm just like, wait, did you guys think of yourselves that way? <laughs> no, they were probably filthy because they rolled rolled around in dirt ah, or something. That, that's but, fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's yeah. So this scene, oh my gosh, this scene was a nightmare because we originally wanted to do those mazes practically. Uh, I, I kind of got the idea from an episode of Survivor that I watched where they had uh, mazes like that sort of cut out of wood. They were a lot smaller, but they were cut out of wood, and they had a chain that they would have to move their chain through, and then they'd pull it out at the end. And we, we tried to cut one of those boards in a maze pattern like that, and the guy who was my set uh, builder was like, man, I can't do it. It, it. it takes way too long, and it looked we didn't have the machinery to do it or the tools to do it, and it just like looked terrible. And we were like, okay, um, let's try to do it out of foam core. And so we tried it out of foam core, and it looked, like, really bad and flimsy and didn't work at all. And literally, like, 12 hours before we're shooting the scene, we're like, man, just paint some green screens on there, and we'll just we'll figure it out later. And, and it ended up being this, which I love. I mean, I like it a lot better than the other things would have been, but still it's like this in post was a nightmare. It just took us so long to do, and tracking all those screens and then green screening them all out and then adding, like, a little finger uh, thing going with it and all that stuff was um, – was so hard. <laughs> it took us forever. But, but I'm like, I'm glad we did it because it turned out good. I, I will say that it turned out pretty well in terms of how they actually uh, interact with the screens because I, I feel like for the most part it, it tracks pretty well considering that now you're telling me like, yeah, there was nothing in front of them. Yeah, and in hindsight, I would have drawn a mat, uh, a green, like a slightly separate shade of green like pattern or at least a path for them to draw their fingers on. So that I could have green screened that out, but then, then they would have had a pattern they could have drawn that would have been consistent and would have worked well because you'll notice they're like – if you go back and watch that again, they're going all over the place on that screen, like diagonally in circles everywhere that makes no sense for a for a map. you know. So uh, we had to just kind of like make the map fit their fingers, and that was part of the, part of the problem. But it, so it worked out good though because like um, the whole idea was that Rin was going to get stuck here, and then in the original in the original script he's just stuck, and then the Raptors come in and just kill him, and he like maybe punches a few of them off or something, but they just come and eat him when he's stuck. But Rin said, "Hey man, you know if you can break me away from this chain, 
like, and it's hooked to my wrist, I'm actually a master at chain martial arts. <laughs> and so, and so like literally on the set, the day we're shooting, he starts to whip around his chain and inches, he's coming inches from all of our faces and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and, uh, but we were like, man, let's choreograph a fight and let's have you actually fight them. Um, and he did. And so he and I kind of choreographed his fight that he did uh, here in a little bit. And I think it's to me, one of the most fun parts of the movie. And it's funny because, uh, again, one of the things we pointed out at the time was like having the one Asian member of the cast be a, somebody who suddenly knows how to do chain martial arts, like, it feels immediately like you're like, really? But hearing that that's, like, an actor ad-lib because it's like, no, I can actually do this crap. It's like, oh, that's actually way, way cool. Yeah. No, it, see, because it was. He was the Asian guy that was on our set and said, hey, I can do martial arts. And we're all like, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, because the part didn't call for it. Um, you know, like I said, he was just going to die. But when he, when he started flipping that thing around, I mean, he was, he was kind of showing off, and we were like, okay, that's got to go in there. You know, and we spent a lot of time on that sequence, uh, making it, making it work. So here, uh, you know, here, Stephanie Roach, who does our, our creature animation for our raptors and our T-Rexes, uh, did a great job along with Dan Moyer and they both, um, you know, rendered and animated the T-Rexes here, or I'm sorry, the raptors, uh, in this sequence, which is, which is cool because we, those scenes, those shots are completely CG. But, um, but this, May scene, scene was neat because we only really had about 20 of those four by eight panels that we just rearranged over and over and over again to make different shapes. And then, uh, they're, they're the same panels that are in this room that we just rearranged over and over and had those guys walk around. And it kind of hopefully gives the impression that they're in a big, some big underground, uh, maze. So it's, it's funny. Uh, I know that's exactly how they do the corridors on the wave rider on legends of tomorrow. Nice. I, I've been on that set, and they constantly are like, "Oh yeah, this this room didn't exist before." Right. Yeah. They just we just move it around, and this was fun because you know Tiger's literally just like doing <laughs> like all the kung fu stuff. It's like that's that's his sort of homage to I think the movies that he loves, and you know we just were like, hey, you know he he does the the Bruce Lee uh, beckon and all this stuff, and the you know he's just this this was actually pretty well planned out. I mean, we knew kind of what he was going to be punching and dodging and. Then Stephanie did a great job animating this, uh, having the Raptors kind of react and be hit uh, to what he's doing. And that was a pretty pretty challenging uh, to do three Raptors in there fighting in this room that's kind of, you know, looks the same from every angle. Keeping them all in the right place was difficult. I, I, I kind of like the, the, the little things in this scene, like the, the wiping of the sweat and the little uh, come hither with the <laughs> hand. I don't remember what you call that. <laughs> right, right. There he goes. He gets it there. And then we had uh, our sound. Our sound designer and mixer was named Ando Johnson, and he did a great job of making the scene. We talked about it. It's like we're not going to show the raptors very much, uh, but we can hear them a lot, and I think that makes the scene a lot more intense because you can hear the raptors, uh, you know, somewhere. You know, you know they're close because you can hear them in the distance, and then they're let loose into the maze. I purposely have Joy running into dead ends. So you'll notice every time we show her, she's running into a dead end. So uh, later on, she's the one that says, they're all dead ends. Which is funny because until that happened and until until she came in and said that, I was just like, are we just is, – is this just because uh, she's not too bright or is it just because we're following her because she's the bad guy? <laughs> yeah, no, it's just because I wanted to show that there, no one was having any luck finding a way out. And then, uh, as the, 
you know, as the, hopefully the tension ramps up as the Raptors start, you know, there becomes more and more of them and they start running and, you know, it just, they, they're kind of desperate. You know, I like the idea here that they're not, um, really worried about each other at this point. You know, no one's trying to kill, they're just trying to not be in this situation that Stephanie's in right now. And I like, I always liked Adam's little smirk here, like, yeah, yeah, easy. And of course, it's it's interesting because uh, one of the things we pointed out when I talked about this is that this whole segment of it plays by video game rules, where it's like he shoots it and then it's kind of just gone. Um, yeah, right. There's nobody tripping over the carcass, <laughs> right? And you get to this grate, which looks to weigh about 16 ounces, but they need the gun to to kick it out. <laughs> sure, man. They could have just ripped it right off, no problem. But I also like the fact that we noticed later that like Tucker never misses, like his shots never miss. Uh, he hits every shot he takes, he hits. And then, uh, conversely, when, um, the cannibal gets the gun, Albert, when he gets the gun, he misses every time. Was so, that scripted or was that just kind of how it broke down when you It's just how it Albert? worked. It's just how it worked out. <laughs> it's just, it's just how it worked out. I didn't notice it until after we did it. And this, this little, uh, corridor they're all crawling in is just, uh, you know, I think eight of those four by, eight panels we flipped them around and put sheet metal on them and made a little tunnel and that, that's a very short that's all that's very short but we just with editing we made it seem like it was a lot longer hallway that they're crawling through one thing i liked about this was the fact that you know when they finally get out of here like it's immediately it's still going you know albert jumps down and whacks tucker right in the head and that just felt like to me it's like right when you think you're going to get a breath it just like keeps going just a little bit more like right here you think oh they're out and she's like nope they're fighting again and then uh i don't know if this is bad luck or if the show did this on purpose but it's out of ammunition see i kind of assumed when i when i watched it that it was a a matter of well that stage of the game is over so that bonus is gone yeah i would see there you go i like that that makes that makes more sense than what i thought And so this, uh, you know, this iteration of the host is not Ryan Merriman. This is uh, our stand-in, Daniel. I like the the little, and, and this has, of course, become a kind of post-Iron Man, become a, a standard of, of adventure movies. But the little like discs and tables and things like that with the with the projections. Uh, I but I like the idea that you can have this practical prop that is. Presumably pretty cheap and pretty small, but it's yep. got so much kind of weight to it within the visual effects world. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, the, the that thing and the collars and the gun and the helmet were all 3D printed. So we had um, our uh, our friend Emilio, who does our props for us. He's based in Belgium, actually, but he would design them in a 3D program, and then we would kind of make tweaks on it, and then he would just print them out and paint them. And send them over to us. So those were all, it was really cool to be able to do that kind of thing because like, you know, it's hard to fabricate that kind of stuff otherwise. Especially the guns, man. You know, you could do, you could like paint a Nerf gun or whatever, but we just wanted to have um, something more. This is cool. Uh, If you pause that there, that's uh, all the YouTube channels are kind of Easter eggs from uh, our, our other movies. Nice. And that's the that's like the closest you get to actually being R rated in this. Really, is right. The, the, the Black Widow stuff is like as racy as it gets. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, we were we were kind of going for more of a PG thirteen on this. You know, we just we just wanted the you know, and and what, you know what I like about that is I've had kids watch this, and uh, you know, ten year old, eleven, twelve, that are just like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite movie ever. You know, or even reviewers have said, if I was twelve years old, this would be my favorite movie. So it kind of like I like I like that. You know, I like that about it. I, I kinda... the only thing that I, I said when I was when I was watching this is like man she is effective at seducing somebody when he's when he's naked and she's not. <laughs> it's a funny story about those two guys. Okay, they they both work in our office uh, at the time. They were in our uh, like digital department, and they're both models uh, on the side. And I went in one morning and said, uh, "Hey guys, I need I need two guys that would be uh, willing to be in their underwear for a shoot tonight." And they were both like, okay, where, when? <laughs> <laughs> so they were funny. I like this this scene of the, the giant screen. It feels like that trope of like when Nick Fury was talking to the uh, international whatever committee in Avengers. It's like, oh, there's a disembodied authority here. Right. And I always just feel like it's very futuristic to have a giant face. I don't know why, but it felt like it. It felt like it was. Well, it totally tracks now that everybody's got their smartphone, and it's like he could literally just be FaceTiming, and she's looking at what should be six inches tall, but it's eight feet tall. Right, exactly. And if you're know, if you in a TV production, you could look at this and say, well, wait a minute, she's on a green screen right there with the logo, but then when it cuts to her in the room that she's in, there's no green screen behind her, or there's no logo behind her, so how are they doing that? And I just thought to, that's something we even talked about, and I was like, ah, in the future they could figure that out. They are. They already almost have that. I mean, your iPhone can almost do that already. It's the thank you for smoking thing. Thank God we invented that thing. <laughs> right, right. But I liked I liked Perry in this scene a lot. I think she she did a, a nice job of again sort of diving a little bit more into why uh, why are we doing this and um, what's sort of the temp- the public temperature on it and then the show stance on it and then I think she feels. She just feels a little bit betrayed here because, um, you know, she doesn't want him bringing up the idea that people are trying to disrupt the show or distract from the show. It's always in- it's interesting now looking at uh, movies like this where it's like, you know, if I'd watched this in a pre-Trump kind of era, and this isn't a judgment on Trump at all. It's a judgment on kind of the, the way that the culture has gone. It's like there are so many things where it's like, well, the norms would prevent people from doing that. But it's like, no, the norms haven't stopped anything in the last two years. And so clearly the norms are largely meaningless now. Yeah. Yeah, right. We've had people ask us on this on this scene coming up, you know, like, why do you have brontosauruses in here? They're not meat eaters. They're not carnivores. Again, it was just my attempt to make the world seem like they're in a Jurassic, you know, they're in a big Jurassic world. You know, there's there's dinosaurs everywhere. It was supposed to just make the world feel bigger. In the original script, uh, I think they were much closer, and they were sort of dodging giant footsteps and things like that. Um, so it was a more perilous and dangerous scene. And uh, just for timing and budget, we just weren't able to do that. I also feel like this is like this little moment with Tucker where he kind of stands and watches after everybody else has run off is a nice little character beat because it's like there is a small element of him that even though all this terrible crap is going on, he's just like, wow, that's that's a dinosaur. Right. And then there's a moment here where um, she asked him, you know, why do you think they chose dinosaurs to be the things that we're running from? And he says, 
probably because they tested or maybe they tested better than robots. And that's actually that's actually true. When we were developing this movie, we were asking buyers and distributors what kind of you know, would they rather see robots or dinosaurs? And they overwhelmingly said dinosaurs. So this could have been a robot movie. <laughs> it could have been robot par- uh, robot games. But and then you would have had to wait until, like, the Terminator comes out next year. Exactly, exactly. So here's our uh, man-eating plant that, uh, uh, that we did that – you know, we, we've talked about this. We've talked about this scene, and you know, it's again. You, if I if I'm looking back on this, uh, you know, I, I would shoot it differently. You know, to try to make try to make them uh, be able to interact. Like right there, it doesn't look like he's really hidden uh, it, hidden it. So, you know, I mean, this is stuff that as we do uh, as we do this, we're going to try to get better at and learn from. And it's you know, like I like I mentioned, I think uh, to you in another interview or another time we had talked, it's. Our focuses were really on the raptors and the T-Rexes on this, and every other dinosaur in it or every other thing in it was kind of like a bonus for us, you know, and we did our best. Like the uh, saber-toothed tiger scene, it's like it's like we could have had that be another raptor, but we wanted to practice using fur and seeing if we could do a creature with fur, and so we developed the saber-toothed tiger fur and practiced with it and, you know, went through that. So next time we're doing fur for a, for a movie, we'll be that much further along. But I liked I liked Red that's Red Terrell there as Big Brother and I, I liked his performance in this scene. He looks like I liked the idea that there'd be a contestant that was like you know I don't I don't want to do this anymore I'm out. And then uh, his collar starts beeping red and little brother has to come and punch his face to let him see <laughs> see the light. It, it's funny because. In the world of the movie, they actually have names, uh, but in the credits, they're Big Brother and Little Brother. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm sure you noticed this when we were uh, doing the podcast. That confused me, and I ended up thinking that Big Brother was a different character. Ah, uh, like sorry. the Big Brother, like the Big Brother was you know Big Brother, the metaphor. Oh right. Of, oh right. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Like the government. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was there was a hilarious, a hilarious forty five seconds where I went around talking about somebody as completely the wrong character before realizing like oh it's literally the big brother never mind. <laughs> I like this guy with the glasses. Uh, he's just so yeah. into what he's doing. He is. That's that's my great friend Lucas Ross. He and I have done all kinds of projects together. And he's a locally here in Oklahoma City. He's a, on TV every morning on a morning show. So he's kind of a local celebrity. So at the end, when he gets his fate uh, in our in our screening, the whole audience uh, laughed pretty hard. <laughs> I liked uh, I like how Joy is always very like uh, aggressive towards the host and threatening threatening him. Like she can actually do something, but I, I like that. On the other hand, I feel like that I don't know if she is the kind of person who would think of it this way, but I feel like that makes her better TV and makes her. Uh, Harder, harder for them to kill arbitrarily. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's a good point. Though the movie's got a lot of hidden visual effects too. Like obviously, this is a a fun one where the uh, you know the, the, he steps on a mine <laughs> here, but he kind of does the video game thing. It's funny you mentioned that earlier because he steps on the mine right and blows up, and you'll notice he fades out right away. And the reason he fades out right away is because if not, he would have had to have been laying there in about twenty more shots. Um, and so we were like, and we were trying to do that and trying to get that to look good. And it, it was like way too difficult. And we were just like, you know what? We'll just have them fade off and who cares? But, uh, that, that worked, that worked good. And so now they're under the gun to get to that supply box, but big brother's still done. 
these guys were really good sports about doing all their own stunts and all the fighting and the punching and all that stuff. And, you know, some of those punches actually landed on accident. And these guys, especially uh, especially Adam Hampton, you know, these guys took a beating uh, out there. And, and uh, I think it worked pretty good because a lot of these fights I felt I was pretty happy with with the sell, selling of the punches. We opted for not a super gory head explosion there just to keep it kind of PG-13. Well, and, and the gory head explosions are really hard to do on a yeah. modest budget. Like we've for sure. That's that's the thing that because head explosions are super common in kind of B movies, and and one of the things that we talked about when we were looking at this film is that like at least doing it kind of digitally like that, it it looked better than it would have looked trying to make it look photorealistic. Yeah, or yeah, like trying to explode a dummy head or something. Yeah. This was a. I thought this was a fun, appropriate way for uh, this character to go out, and I remember uh, writing that in the script and kind of like, <laughs> kind of laughing and being kind of proud of myself for that <laughs> for that moment. But, but uh, that's always fun. That kind of like, I mean, if you don't think this is a B movie, you do now, you know. But I, I like that scene a lot. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And I liked I liked the idea of it. It was almost a, a subversion of expectations because as soon as little brother. Uh, as as soon as the one brother goes, you think like, oh, now this other guy is going to go totally buck wild because he's got nothing to lose. Yeah. And so losing him like a minute later, it's like, <laughs> that's not how I thought that was going to go. <laughs> well, I remember in this point of the script, I just need to, I remember like, I need to start killing people, you know, because we need to get to the end here or we need to get, we need to get down to our final, I think they're down to the final four now. So... And again, you know, I thought Ryan and Perry had great chemistry and, you know, Ryan played, uh, Ryan was great because when I met him at the airport, he flew in from Los Angeles to shoot the movie. Uh, we shot it all in Oklahoma and when he, he's from Oklahoma originally, but when he got here, he kind of just gave me a big hug and, and, uh, he said, man, he goes, I want to play this like evil Ryan Seacrest. Are you cool with that? And I, was <laughs> like, I was like, man, yes, I'm cool with that. So I thought Ryan did a great job of, of that. It, it's funny because one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, the Josie and the Pussycats movie from 2001. <laughs> oh, yeah. And all of all of the villains in that movie are basically these people but with much, much lower stakes. <laughs> like it's all people in white suits, like high fashion douchebags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Luke Wyckoff, who plays Albert the Cannibal, this is probably his standout scene for me. I, I really liked his acting uh, and his performance right here. And he was saying so much with just the way he was looking at her. And I, I loved that. It's it's funny because the way his facial hair is groomed uh, combined with the blood makes him <laughs> yeah. look kind of like an evil puppet in a couple of these shots. And it's it works actually really well for him. Yeah, I thought so too. I mean, we cast him obviously because he had a great audition, but also we just loved his eyes, you know, and uh, the look he gives, the look he gives Kate right here uh, is one of my favorites when he, yeah, I I love that. (laughs) So this was, uh, this is kind of a matte painting where we just took some footage of a volcano and it's a CG effect. But here we get, uh, you know, when, when, so like I said earlier, uh, Adam Hampton helped me write a lot of the story and he's a good writer and director himself. 
who's done a lot of great stuff and, and, uh, I kind of tapped him to help me come up with a lot of this stuff. And so throughout the movie, we were just like, you know, I kind of see Tucker as like, um, maybe, maybe he's Tom Hardy from Mad Max. Maybe he's like kind of quiet. He doesn't really talk in. So there were lines in the earlier versions of the script that we ended up giving to other characters just to keep Tucker more quiet. And then, uh, the only, this is really all he says in the whole movie. He didn't say much more than just, uh, him describing what happened to, uh, to joy right here. And, you know, when you get to the big sort of reveal at the end of the movie, you know, and, and joy kind of makes her confession, part of me wonders, did she really do it? Or is she just taking all this in right now and formulating her own story, which is entirely possible just to mess with him, you know? And, uh, so, you know, to me, I can go either way on that. Yeah. I think we had talked about that, about the idea that she's such a damaged character that it would be entirely believable that she was just that she was just like I would 100% win a fist fight with this guy if he wasn't thinking because he thought I killed his wife right exactly and I, I, I kind of like that better than the idea that she actually did but the movie doesn't really go into whether she did or not and doesn't even go into whether he's innocent or not and I those are those are details that I just felt thought were better left unanswered you know I and do then, uh, I do though I like the I didn't think of that until like 10 minutes after we got done with the initial podcast. So I think that like when we were talking on the show, I was like, that's a really neat ending. And I'm not like neat as in it ties up a whole lot. And I'm not sure that I love it. And then Mm -hmm. as soon as I stood back and and went like, you know, I kind of feel like that character would totally make that crap up. It's like in my head, that became such a better ending. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's something that we sort of like. I wish I would have said that we would have thought about that as we were writing it, but it was really more like, oh no, we need to tie this up neatly. Yeah. And, and then, uh, afterwards I was like, well, you know, she could have been lying. And, uh, you know, another thing too, that you'll notice is like, you know, the scene before this one, it was all red and sunset and this scene is now all noon and bright and sunny. And I thought, oh, that's the beauty of a digital world. It doesn't yeah. matter. Here's yeah, uh, Albert the missing. conforms to the needs of the scene. Exactly. Uh, Albert missed four laser shots right there. And uh, this is another scene that we ended up reshooting because initially it's on the DVD as a deleted scene. Um, same with the earlier earlier one that I mentioned in the earlier fight. But it was uh, funny because this was like in the original cut of this, it was like two punches and then he goes over the cliff. And uh, we thought that's just so anticlimactic and we wanted it, we wanted the fight to be drawn out and much more exciting. So we came back and reshot this fight sequence, which I felt was much better. And, you know, Luke in in real, in real life, this guy, Luke Wyckoff is the nicest. He is like always smiling. He's the nicest guy ever. Um, He was so excited to be on set and to be filming. And he was just, it's just funny to see the character he plays in the movie because it's not even close to how he is in real life. I just feel like people like that play the best villains because it's like, this is the only chance I have in life to get this out of my system. (laughs) Right. So we, uh, John Cusack to be a serial killer. (laughs) So yeah, here's some uh, nice editing by Andy Swanson and then some good, um, some uh, good fight, fight, uh, choreography, but that these guys kind of came up with and did a good job of making this, these punches look like they're hitting. I like his look there. He's like, he feels like he's got the upper hand. They're fighting over the gun. If you look really close there, you can see the gun is duct taped together because it broke in half earlier. Um, 
and you've got uh, this shot coming up here where um, Albert goes over the cliff. And it's funny because we shot him actually uh, on a green screen. We shot him like um, we shot him on a green screen, uh, like kind of acting like he was sliding. And we were going to use that uh, and slide it down this plate. And it just looked so, so bad. It looked like color forms or something. And so uh, we tried to do a CG at the very last minute. I mean, we did that in such a short amount of time. Um, had the, uh, C- the CG guys do a, a sort of a human CG model of him falling it. You know, it kind of is what it is. I do think that there was enough stuff going on in that sh- in that scene, though, that the average person, like I hadn't thought about that, like the look of that at all until you until you brought it up. So I do oh, good. Most people probably like watching it are just like, there's so much shit going on right now that you don't necessarily notice the the yeah. technical stuff, moment to moment. Well, good. This this is a, one of the scenes that uh, I talked about in the in the theater when we showed it at our at our world premiere um, was really great because as he gets I think everyone at this point is looking at this just kind of like laughing you know and <laughs> and as they're <laughs> as they're laughing uh, and we were laughing too when we saw it it's just so ridiculous and then um, you know as we cut uh, when we see his you know bug eaten remains there and it cuts to the audience laughing it's exactly what the real audience was doing and then when they see this guy take a drink like yeah this is, i see this every year on the jurassic games no big deal you know this scene here was uh this scene here was ryan merriman's favorite scene he told me before we shot it um he was really excited to do this scene because he just thought he thought this scene encapsulated the whole tone of the movie yeah this is something that we didn't talk about quite as much as i would have liked to when we talked about it on the podcast because i this was a such a great kind of idea and it kind of tracks with the idea of this is a world where they're not going to let protesters anywhere near the screen. Why would they let the the family members? Because if they don't get exactly what they want out of it, then like that's yeah. bad TV. Right. right. But then we learn that the, that even the family members are actors. And yeah, that was really fun. Ryan had a lot of fun. Uh, Ryan ad libbed a lot of his. Uh, the, some of the funny like one-liners and quips he had, you know, he would do take after take of like different little jokes, and he was great about coming up with little one-liners and stuff. And a lot of the stuff that he did, we kept in there. I like the fact that the the family box becomes its own cheering section when she. <laughs> <laughs> in the original uh, idea here, this was supposed to be snow, and I wanted this to be a snowy uh, scene, and we actually brought snow machines up to the top of the of the uh, uh, cliffside there and it's probably a blessing in disguise that they didn't work we couldn't get them to get them to work uh, because that might have been a real problem to try to have to make this whole thing look snowy but that was kind of our original thought thing that sounds good on paper but it's a continuity nightmare exactly and like just practically not really possible and it would have added like so much CG to try to like CG snow everything that you know I just think it's it worked out for the better. I I kind of like this is this is a weird little thing, but the like gut instinct where you're, you you want certain things. I kind of like the fact that uh, the cannibal goes before his victim. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that too, and I I also like that the cannibal was eaten alive. That was something that we oh, yeah I hadn't thought we, about that. Yeah, it's something that we did on purpose. Did on purpose. I was like, yeah, he needs to die by being eaten, like like by bugs, like gross. So there she's supposed to be, like, 
letting the snow fall in her face. And then so, yeah, here's, here's our saber-toothed tiger, which we were just really wanting to see if we could do uh, some fur simulation. But I stole this scene from uh, Swiss Family Robinson, the old movie, Disney movie from the 60s, where the little boy traps a tiger in a pit, and uh, one of the pirates gets falls into the pit later. And I thought, I thought that'd be a cool, a cool way for Joy to uh, kill somebody is to trap a trap a creature, and then lure someone else into that trap. And uh, so that's what she ends up doing here, which I thought was kind of cool. I will say, Swiss Family Robinson doesn't necessarily. Uh, it's not necessarily the first thing you think of for the influence for the movie, but <laughs> totally, totally I know, makes but sense. Everybody says Jurassic Park meets Hunger Games. I say Jurassic Park meets, meets Swiss Family Robinson. <laughs> Well, and, and it's funny because the thing that Zach kept coming back to was Death Wish, or not Death Wish, Death, Death Race. Death Race, yeah. It's um, like I, it, it isn't as simple as jamming two things together. There's like eight different things that have elements in here. <laughs> yeah, honestly, for me, I was more influenced by something like The Running Man, you know, uh, more of like because I really got into the TV show aspect of it. So um, I, I liked I liked Adam's performance here when he's pleading out to his kids. I I like it a lot. I think there's a little bug that flies in the background, crawling up the back there. You see that? I kind of like the fact that he's talking to them, but he doesn't know exactly where the camera is because yeah. that feels much more real than, like, a lot of movies he would have been spiking the lens when he's having that speech. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've got our – we've got our – one thing I liked about Joy was that Joy gets through the game without a scratch. You know, I mean, she doesn't she doesn't get – hit or I mean she gets kind of choked at the beginning but I mean beyond that she doesn't get any of this bad stuff happening to her that has happened to everyone else so again that's going into setting up a finale where Joy is at full strength and Tucker is at 50% uh, to give uh, Joy the upper hand and make the fight seem like it's more fair this was a sequence where uh, originally we filmed a much a little bit longer fight between these two girls and uh, it was just kind of funny because they it just didn't really work they were kind of like too afraid to like really hit each other and it looked like it. So we just changed it to one kick in the face. <laughs> Which actually it, it works well with the establish establishing shot of her just like leaning against the rock because it's yeah. just like she has absolutely no concern whatsoever for what's going right. on right now. Exactly. I love the shot of Kate here uh, when we see her laying uh, down like, like that shot. So cool. And, uh, but yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is one of my favorite parts of, uh, that Ryan does here. To me, the movie really starts to pick up right here and we're entering into the third act and it's like, okay, here we go. And from here on out, the movie is like, uh, to me, I kind of forget that I'm watching one of our movies and I just am watching a movie. And, uh, that's one of the things that I'm always really happy about if we can achieve that. But, uh, Ryan's, Ryan's monologue here is great. I think he delivered it, delivered it really well. He just, he said it exactly like he should, you know? The nice thing, I think, too, is you have the combination of a good actor and this character who is kind of such an archetype that mm -hmm. it feels like an actor who has worked as much as Ryan, like, he knows exactly how he would play a character like this because there are characters like this. Right. I think, too, uh, the score is something I'd like to mention because right here it really starts to pick up and uh, David Hamilton, who did our music, just did a really good job of combining 
you know, we wanted something electronic that represented the future, but also orchestral and big and bombastic that represented dinosaurs. And um, I think he did a great job of marrying the two uh, in a really unique way, where sometimes the, the score feels like we're watching an episode of, um, you know, Black Mirror or something, and I really like that. I do like the doors, too. Thanks. Just as a, as a general transition device. So this is a location. It was a place called Little Sahara in Oklahoma City, or not, not Oklahoma City, or in Oklahoma, and it uh, it was awesome, man. I mean, it's like seventy foot sand dunes, three sixty degrees. So here's Perry Reeves. Uh, uh, in her death scene, and she was wearing a cast on her left boot, her foot. She had just had surgery, I believe. So she wasn't exactly mobile, and she'd been wearing, she's wearing like a giant foot brace thing. And so, like, her going down to the ground, uh, like, to do a stunt of being shot was not the easiest thing for her to do, but she was a, a real sport and gave us what we needed. And we were able to get this uh, shot of her going down. Like, that's, that's kind of why it's cut kind of short. It's just like she, didn't really have the mobility to do much more than just kind of duck. There she goes. <laughs> so we we also la we also laugh at this too because Laura, who's our you know terrorist slash caveman person, I think she has more kills than anyone in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. And actually, I I like the fact that Laura throughout that scene is getting, you know, menaced and threatened and whatever, and she's just kind of looking on like she's not at all impressed because it, yeah. it feels like a parallel to Joy. Yeah, it does, yeah. The thing I really enjoyed about writing this was that the people on the outside of the game were much more gray as far as, like, are they bad or good, you know, and uh, the people in the game is pretty much clear, but outside the game, you know, Laura and the host and Savannah, it's like I felt like that you could understand their reasonings for doing what they were doing, uh, didn't necessarily make it right, but uh, you could kind of sympathize with them, and I kind of like that. I like villains like that. Uh, another scene where I thought Adam Hampton just really kills it here uh, with his reaction to his children. And it was fun to be able to reuse this same footage that they were shooting earlier. I think Adam's great, and he, he kind of, like, sets the tone, you know, because the actors kind of see what he's doing. They see what Ryan's doing and what Katie's doing, and none of the none of the actors are taking it as a joke or as mm -hmm. winking to the camera. They're all playing it like it's real, and that's how I like I prefer to do our stories that way. You know, it's like I'd rather, I'd rather them all act like it's a real thing than do it too tongue-in-cheek. Well, and we – one of the things that we talked about in the podcast is that this movie did very well kind of nail the balance of knowing – like the sort of movie it is without letting that undermine it where it's like the script itself has enough kind of humor and whatever else to be like this is the kind of movie we're making uh and so the actors then are free to essentially treat it like no but th th this has stakes because I'm, this is the world i'm in yeah i'm glad you think that man i appreciate that we, we really did work hard on the script and on the story and um, there is a, like I kind of mentioned earlier briefly, there is a little bit of a meta aspect about this because it's almost a, it's almost a story about 
or, or at least highlighting a lot of what we have to go through to make a movie like this, if that kind of makes sense. Like a lot, a lot of the things that are in the Jurassic Games TV show, we put in the Jurassic Games TV show because we were asked to put them into the movie itself. And so we kind of embrace those things rather than, you know, bemoan them. You know what I'm saying? And that's, I think that's kind of why maybe the movie is a little bit aware of itself in that way. I always like the fact that she doesn't care at all about finding her key. Now, uh, in, in your mind, does that is that because she's suicidal, or is it just because she figures if she kills him right now, she'll win by default anyway? Yeah, I think it was more like that. She's she's just going to kill him and finish him and then win in her mind. And I like that the host kind of lets it go a little bit until he he gets kind of bored. Or, or he sees that, I think he gets bored, but he also sees that Tucker might actually kill her, which he never expected. So he's like, okay, okay, I need to do something, you know, and obviously they don't, they don't want the show to end on two guys just punching each other to death. They want it to be a lot more exciting than that, especially if it's called the Jurassic Games. And again, I said this off camera, but I, I think like, you know, between my day job and the podcast, I, I watch like, you know, a hundred movies a year, and I feel like Katie legitimately is is probably my favorite villain of anything I've watched yet this year. Like, I think that she really kills this performance. Man, that's so cool to hear you say that. She would love to hear that too. She, you know, she uh, kind of like Luke. She's super nice in person, and just not, like getting this out of her, she has to she has to dig deep, you know, to get this kind of performance out of her, and she does. And she's uh, one of those rare people that has the ability to like kind of, you know, give her 10 minutes and then she can come out and, you know, be, uh, she actually is a mass, you know, murdering vicious <laughs> psycho killer, you know, and, uh, that's something that's really, really, really fun to watch these two guys, uh, in the scene perform and, uh, play off each other with such great chemistry. I thought it was great. I, I think too, that, uh, especially when it comes to the stage combat stuff, it's funny to see how much like the two actors, kind of give and take each other because like if there's a if there's a weakness in her it's that like you see some of the punches she's throwing and you're like yeah that didn't have the impact that but but he's acting he's acting opposite her he's letting it have the impact that it needs and so the scene plays fine um right and so that's like that's one of those things where it's like that's a, a really nice kind of chemistry that the two of them have as as kind of that part of the scene was playing out absolutely yeah, we, we worked on that very hard because, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, Katie is not a trained combat fighter, you know, and, and she did some training and pre- preparation for the role, but she, she'll even admit, and I've heard her say it a lot, that she's like, I didn't train enough, you know, uh, to be able to do all the physical fighting and stuff that was required for this. So, um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of those punches, you know, we had our stunt coordinators there, and we were trying to help her throw those things convincingly, but, you know, it just took, you know, again, and she's such a slight, small person and you know it was was just again why we were so concerned with making it look like that she could actually have any kind of impact on hitting a guy like like tucker and i'm with you i think the way tucker sells it uh goes a long way into helping it be convincing so this this whole sequence with the rex is uh you know obviously took us uh months to do and um the stuff with the everything from the simulating the sand to you know, the uh, sometimes in some of the shots, that it's a complete CG environment. 
you know, and we did a lot of rotoscoping where we're cutting people out and just a very, a very long, uh, long scene that I just, I knew this was the climax of the movie and I thought, wow, three T-Rexes in the desert against two people could be really fun. I was going to say, I like the idea that uh, the the dinosaurs acting unpredictably and like they would in, in the wild uh, messes the messes with the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, So he's like, we program them to behave the way they would in nature. And I guess he's just uh, assuming that T-Rexes would be, uh, you know, territorial. So yeah, yeah. They, don't, they don't like the idea of uh, other ones. So, um, and that, and also too, we thought, oh, that gives us the opportunity to have them fight each other. Which would be and really it's a, it's kind of a nice spin on, uh, I mean, going to Jurassic Park, and then they've done it in almost every movie where the T Rex shows up and has the big hero moment at one point. It's like this is the opposite. Like the the, the T Rexes all show up and make the T Rex look uh, less effective because yeah. they they show up and the big hero moment is accidentally screwing it up. Right. Right. Here's another do, very, very. I do also kind of like the chain. Oh, I was gonna. I, I like the. I like the thing of the chain of like. Oh, she literally just the the dead T Rex is on the chain. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how we stopped her from reaching the finish line. And then uh, you know, so here Tucker finds his very coincidentally finds the key in his arm. But you know, when you're when you're playing a virtual game, you could always have the question. Well, maybe they wanted it to be there and they put it there. You know, that's that that kind of like alleviates a lot of the coincidental stuff that in. If this were just real life on an island somewhere, then, you know, it's a little bit more like, okay, really, he falls on his key, you know. Um, but I like the idea that they maybe somebody pushed a button and it was there, you know. Well, and I, I always kind of feel like it's it's the video game thing of, like, yeah, you're, you're searching through a vast desert for a, a, a key. But at the same time, they do know that there's the balance of, like, difficulty versus the ability to win that has to be. Right. Yeah, they can't be out there for three hours looking for a key. Exactly. That's yeah. terrible television. Right, right, right. And here we've got the the race to the end, which you, boom. And again, I'm so I'm so torn by this because I I know exactly like I, I I like the the narrative idea of him not killing, but there is something that's viscerally less satisfying about the fact that he doesn't do anything to physically stop her. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. He kind of he kind of does a little bit where he's like, you know, he does make the he does say, "I'm going to kill you" after she admits to killing, you know, and and so he like I think he mentally has prepared himself to have to do it, and then and then he's uh, then he's interrupted by the Rexes, and he's just then he goes into survival mode. But um, but yeah, I can totally see what you're saying. And, and again, it's one of those. It's not a right or wrong thing. It's literally because I'm sitting here watching it, going like, "Of course," because like his whole character, like the the biggest thing we know about his character is that he didn't kill anybody. Yeah. You know. I also like the fact that you had the false ending because you get to the end of the game before this happens, instead of letting the game play out while this is going on. Yeah, here's another – this is another uh, scene that we had a lot of fun doing, and Ryan really had a great time. Uh, you know, he's – he's uh, you, you, sometimes you don't know. You know, I, I never worked I never worked with him before, and but this guy was just like a trooper. And I, I knew that we had – we were going to have a great time on set when this scene came, 
because I we shot it a few times where he was just standing up when he when he got into the desert, and I I thought you know it'd be a lot better if he just like woke up with the dirt in his mouth and he's on his belly, you know. And uh, I asked him, I said, Ryan, you know, would you be, would you mind, like, because that's his suit, that wasn't a wardrobe, that was, you know, he brought it. <laughs> so I was like, would you mind, like, laying in the sand? And that was on green screen, but we had a sandy floor. And uh, he's like, yeah, man, I'll do it. And he did it, and he did two or three takes. And uh, he, I mean, he didn't even bat an eye at it, man. He was just such a sport, and it was just awesome. I feel a little bit bad for Joy that she didn't get to see this. Yeah, <laughs> I've also heard some people say that he didn't deserve his fate, but uh, yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I, I guess I could see that, but maybe who, who knows? Maybe he's not dead. I, I also feel like like he, maybe he didn't deserve his fate, but at the same time, like as as a human, he didn't deserve his fate. But as a cog in the machine, it's like it, like I said, there's some things where it's like there's the visceral satisfaction of that plot beat. Yeah. Well, you know, we we talked a little bit about um, there there is a novelization of the screenplay of this, and it and it actually does go into quite a bit the history of the host and why. And I think if you read more about that, then you would see that he does deserve it because he's very callous and doesn't care about these people at all. And he's just he really is just in it for money and fame and stuff. So this is funny. The um, reason this is slow motion is not for it's not for emotional impact. It's because in the original edit of this, it lasted about five seconds. <laughs> it was like way too short and anticlimactic. So we, uh, I wish if I would have known I was going to do this, I would have shot it in slow motion. But instead, we just slowed down the regular speed footage, and that's why it's a little bit choppy. But somebody said, uh, hey, no, it's like that makes sense to be choppy because it's Tucker. He's kind of like coming out of a dream state, and it's kind of like confusing. And I was like, yeah, we'll go with that. But, I, I half expected him to get killed in this sequence when I first watched the film. Yeah, a lot of people thought he was dead right there. But even before the gunshot, I just thought like he's half conscious, and there's this gunfight going on. Everybody in this movie is going to die. Yeah. No, I had to. I had to leave him alive. But I like this. I like this look that uh, Laura gives him here. And there's a, you know, it's like. You know, they they started together at the very beginning of the movie when she's asking him if he'll be in the games, and they end up together. Like that, which I thought was kind of cool. And then uh, we're about to get to the ending where he's reunited with his kids. And kind of a funny story about this, I, 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 was, I was like uh, just very sure that we were doing international, uh, you know, we're making the movie for international sales. And I wanted to make sure that them eating uh, Chinese food was okay. And I asked our sales agent, he said, just make sure you do not have them put the chopsticks Sticking up in the rice because that's bad luck huh. in uh, in Chinese or something like that. So, which and is that, funny yeah. because that's what pretty much everybody does in every movie you've ever seen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, here we go with the preview for the next season of Jurassic Games. And I remember telling the uh, guy who did this, Matt Matt Gardaki did the did this shot. He's a guy who helped us a lot with a lot of the visual effects. And I just told him, man, they just need to be lasers, and it, I don't care. It just it just needs to be crazy. And this is what he gave back, gave us back, and I was like, "Yep, love it." <laughs> I was like, the, "You know, rockets firing and armor." And I love the anchor who was on the left, by the way. Her, she said the perfect <laughs> level of like local anchor perk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there it is. It goes by pretty quick. 
Yeah, I mean that was one of the things. Like when when we were talking about the the film, it's I think we spent more time talking about the movie than you than the movie's actual runtime. Right. I think I noticed that. Yeah. I was like, man, these guys reviewed the movie longer than the movie actually is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like it, it's it's good to be able to talk to you about it. First of all, because you gave some really interesting insights, and and this will be different than the commentary on the DVD because you're talking about like the premiere and things like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's quite a bit different. Yeah, and and um, no, and you thanks for having me, man. And you asked a lot of really uh, great questions and had me thinking about things in a whole new new way and uh, about the story and about the movie, which I really like and appreciated. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any any final thoughts while the credits are rolling? Because obviously there's a you know a minute and a half or whatever left of uh, of just well, running out. You know, I I do want to say, and this is embarrassing to admit this, but we um, you know in the, in the haste of putting this movie together, we left off one of the main cast in the credits, and I feel terrible about it. It's uh it's Dylan Cox who plays uh, El Avispa, the Wasp. We uh, left him out of the credits, and and uh, he's accredited on IMDb. But um, I just wanted to give him a shout out, a special shout out, because he called me and he's like, "Man, did I do something wrong?" And I was like, why? <laughs> "I was like, why?" And he goes, "Because I'm not in the credits." And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" So uh, it was a complete uh, oversight, and you know, um, we we'll, we've made some changes where we're going to do our credit system a little bit differently because it's embarrassing, man. Because I mean, you spend so much time trying to get a T Rex to look just right, and then you misspell somebody's name or leave them out, and it's just like, oh, are you kidding me? You know, so. That's something that I'm not super proud of, and I just wanted to kind of like if, if mentioning that right now can like make him feel good, then uh, I'll, I'll do that because I, I, uh, you know, feel feel really terrible about it. But it, hey. it's it's too it's funny because everybody uh, he he was a, a standout character, and I feel like I've said that about almost all of the convicts. Like nobody mm-hmm. nobody had a really bad performance. Everybody was like. The whole shtick of the thing is that you're going with archetypes because it's like, oh, we need this type. We need a cannibal and we need a – you know, because these are the, the prototypical convicts. Right. Uh, but everybody did a really good job of kind of playing that archetype while also not being totally just like one-dimensionally like that guy. Well, good. I'm glad. They'd, they'd be happy to hear that, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think everybody kind of like, again, saw the work that other actors were doing and thought, you know, I'm going to do, do everything I can with my screen time to – um, you know, make my character stand out. And I, I encourage that actually. I didn't want anybody to be boring or unforgettable. And I thought, uh, you know, Kyle Pennington stood out to me too as little brother, you know, cause on, on paper, little brother wasn't nearly as interesting as little brother was in the movie. And that's, uh, that's all because of Kyle, you know? So, uh, and like you said, a lot of the other actors, uh, you know, contributed in the same exact way. So, but man, uh, again, thanks for, I know we're coming up to the end here. Thanks for having me. This is a, this was a blast and I can't wait to, uh, share it around and get people to hopefully sync it up and listen to some of this stuff. It's fun. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You bet.